So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark 10. Eventually we will get there, I promise. Eventually we will get to Mark chapter 10. That is my hope. And as you're going there, I'll give you a little bit of introduction. Thank you so much for sharing who I am. Just, uh, I know Aiden did a great job last week talking about setting a platform for justice. And he mentioned that I was the bishop. I am not the bishop. Um, but thank you very much for that vote of confidence, but I am not that. My name is Fraser. I am just a child of the king. Uh, you know, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm a servant to the church. I love the bride of Christ. Man, I feel like I'm a host of the Holy Ghost. And the big thing for me is uh, I married up. I married an amazing wife. Uh, my, my wife's name is Joanne, and she's here with me, and so I'm thankful for that. I have four amazing world changers that kind of hang out with us all the time. Uh, two are biological, others are just through relationship, and, and so I'm thankful for those four. But my, my call to everything, everything now is all about, all of my inheritance, everything I do is about this little dude named Gabriel William Marble. So that is the appropriate response. He is the cutest grandson on the planet. Now, I know some of you are going to come up to me after the service and show me like 20 pictures of your 20 grandchildren. Give a guy a break. I'm just starting. But he is number one in our life. We are so excited that he has been born and excited that he's a part of our life. Now, before I kind of dive in and give an intro of what I'm doing now currently, let me begin by saying I love your pastor. I love Pastor John and Lisa. Um, they are not just colleagues. They are good friends. We've been around the world. I think we have a slide of that. We've, we have traveled together. We have gotten in trouble together. He is the more handsome brother. I think many people think we look alike, but he's much more handsome than I. He definitely married up. Lisa is a gem in the kingdom, a general, I think, in so many ways. But you are blessed to have a pastor like him. Let me just say that just up front. He is a remarkable shepherd. So creative. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. He's probably watching. He shouldn't be, but he's probably watching. And, um, but I am just grateful that he calls me friend. And uh, we've been prayer partners for a long time. And I, I consider it a privilege to be here with you guys to honor the platform and, and hopefully not mess it up for when he returns. That, that's my goal, at least, not to mess it up too much. Well, recently, you know, as I've made this transition, people have asked me, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And, you know, it was hard enough to describe being a pastor and then, you know, how to describe being a superintendent. But try describing to people what the strategic catalyst for love-driven justice is. And so most people are like, I just don't get it. Does it even fit on a business card? And so I'm going to go through a little bit of what that means and then how it all kind of ties together. And our bishops during the pandemic had an amazing time of prayer just to begin to reframe who we are as the Free Methodist Church. Not to change it, but if any of you know the term adaptive leadership, adaptive leadership is just about reframing what it already is. And so they went back to our roots, back to our understanding, and making sure that people were really clear. And they worked on these five core values of the Free Methodist way. And one of those core values is love-driven justice. And so I get the privilege of leading that initiative around the country and parts of the world. Um, so a lot of travel, a lot of those experiences, getting to see the church in all of its glory and who the Free Methodists are all over the place. But let me just kind of explain what love-driven justice is or the strategic catalyst of love-driven justice is. 
because I think every part of the title is significant. So, you know, strategic, of course, is that idea of identifying long-term and overall goals and interests. So we're strategic in thinking of what we're going to do in the future. That idea of being a catalyst, of course, is, uh, it's probably my favorite, second favorite term in my job title in the fact that a catalyst is something or, you know, that goes into an, a, a circumstances and changes the circumstance and the environment without changing itself. And I love that because that's who Jesus is. That was the ethic of Jesus. That was the mission of Jesus. He would enter into an environment and that environment would be radically changed, yet he would not compromise who he is. And many times in the area of justice, when we talk about justice, there is they're warm welcome of, yeah, let's do this. And there's a little bit of a reserve of like, I'm not sure we should be doing this. But I want to assure you that it will always be about the ethic of Jesus. Always the scripture of Jesus. It will always be him being present in any situation to bring freedom to other people. And yet, not having to compromise who you are. And so as free Methodists, we need to be more catalytic in everything that we do. Now, my favorite is the word love, and I've, I had someone who is a real justice advocate, loves justice, loves to do the work, said, well, I don't understand, Pastor, why you have to have love in your title. I said, well, I don't even understand how to answer that question, so I'm just going to call you back after I settle down a little bit. It is all about love. It is the ethic of Jesus. It is who he is, that we should be leaving environments radically different than anything that they're experiencing. And ultimately, I, I hope that would be the same for you, that when you leave a room, that they actually have experienced a greater level of God's love. And if they've not experienced that greater level of God's love, then make sure you don't leave the room until that happens. Because you want the reputation of God's love to be in the room, not you. And so when it comes to justice work, we want to make sure the reputation of Jesus' love has entered the circumstance and into the issue or circumstance. Of course, then it's driven, it's motivated, it has something that has power behind it. Of course, the Holy Spirit is driving us to this new level of initiative, and we need to make sure that we are driven by His presence and His presence alone. People ask me, you know, because in my inbox, I get everything that you would see on a headline that maybe stirs your heart or causes conflict in your spirit. Those end up in my email box saying, what should we say? And how should we do that? And what, how would Jesus respond to such a thing? And I just recognize that without God's presence, I mean, daily, friends, I'm just on my face saying, God, these issues are too big for me. They're too big for the church, but they're not too big for you. So God, where's your presence working right now that I can join you and partner with you? And so it must be driven by the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately, justice is the big word, right? Just trying to figure out how we would define that. And I love what one scholar said. He said, to do justice is to go places where the fabric of the shalom has broken down because of the fallen world, where the weaker members of society are falling through the fabric, and we have a responsibility to repair it and to restore it. He goes on to say, reweaving re shalom means to sacrificially thread lace and press your time, goods, power, and resources into the lives and needs of others. How true that is, because justice is what Christ's love looks like rightly in redemption, in retribution, in restoration, because ultimately it is God saying, I love the masterpiece that I've created in you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a masterpiece. Go ahead. Be convinced of it. It is true that God created you. And clearly, as Paul said, you're a masterpiece. You're his craftsmanship. That original word is that you're the poema of God. You're the poem of God, basically. 
that in the Imago Day, his heart is to see you free, to see you redeemed, to see other people free. And so it breaks God's heart when he sees his humanity broken. And so justice, of course, is always going to be about seeing God enter into those spaces. I think we recognize that justice, as Aidan shared last week, has lots of components, but ultimately it is to make things right is what we get in its original language, to make things right with God, with one another, with our neighbor, with community, and even, yes, with creation. And I think that is so powerful that we recognize that justice is really about a movement towards loving God and loving our neighbor. And usually we stop there and we're like, that's good. And sometimes people will come to me and goes, hey, pastor, I know this thing about justice is important, you know, justice in our community. And in different parts of the country, you know, they have different kind of perspectives on what that looks like. And he honestly just said, but, but what about the church? What about inside the church and the injustice that's happening in the church? And so I don't want to neglect the fact that that's so important, beloved, that part of neighbor is the person sitting beside you, that if they're experiencing injustice, then as a people of God, we should come around them and see that they would become free in Jesus of whatever the oppression is. But I, I, I think what has happened many times for the church is we've become holy huddles and we've kind of hidden back behind our four walls or our street address and we've neglected what's happening in our communities and in our neighborhoods, in our nation and in our globe. And if ever the church should be present in those places, it's now. So I want to make sure that we understand that this, this, this stream of justice moves from reconciling ourselves with God and obviously him doing something deep in our heart and transformation and loving our neighbor within the church walls. But boy, it, it certainly has to impact our community for justice to really see itself manifested in all the world. And then this is the one that's always tricky and where people get a little bit upset and frustrated. It's systems and culture. And I I don't want you to, to freak out when I say that because people are like, oh, I don't know. See, I was good with this God thing. I'm pretty good with the self thing, the neighbor thing. Okay, you're annoying me, but I'm going to do that anyways because God calls me to love my neighbor. But systems and culture, that, that's not our job. That's not our role. And I would just beg to differ. I, I would just encourage you to go back through Scripture and to see how God had laid out his heart of justice. Again, Aiden did a great job by talking about the quadrilateral of justice, they call it, right? The poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. And when God called his people, he was asking them to be an apologetic, not to say they were sorry all the time, an apologetic, a witness of who God was in the nations. So when he set a nation apart and said, I want you to take care of this group of people, he was saying very clearly that there are systems outside of our world that God needs to influence on a daily basis. I think the greatest influence, the greatest answer to many of the injustices that we are facing is not cl more clever thinking, more systems, and especially in the United States where we feel like we can throw a few dollars at it to make it better. It is the people of God acting like the people of God in every situation and circumstance. So whether you're home, if you're a homemaker or you're a home builder, that wherever you are, you're the catalytic love-driven person in that environment. So if you're in government, you should be making a difference for the sake of the kingdom. If you're working at Walmart, not sponsored, that's, that's clever, I like that, then you should be making a difference if Walmart is oppressing people. Whatever that situation is, if it's education, if it's medical, if it's ability, if it's uh, immigration, all of those things, we have an opportunity to bring the witness and life influence of Jesus into every environment that we stand in. 
Otherwise, why did Jesus give us the gift of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit is in, it, in us for our benefit, it has to be upon us for the benefit of others. And that God is calling us to be a people that would host the Holy Spirit in such a way that it would be so attractive to the world to say, there's something different about you. You have been freed from something, and I need that freedom in every system and culture that we're encountering. So I'm going to preach better than you're going to amen me, but I'm okay with that. We'll just keep moving forward. I love, if I think if I lived at the time that MLK, at the same age of MLK, I think we would have been best friends. He says this, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So just as a background foundation, our lives in Christ matter. I love that N.T. Wright, right, famous scholar, theologian, is clear about the kingdom inauguration. He says, absolutely, Jesus came to die for our sins. How many believe that in this room? Jesus rose from the grave. How many believe that? How many are grateful that you get to go and spend eternity with Jesus? Okay. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, today is the day for you. Okay? There's no doubt. That is the greatest gift that we have been given through Jesus, man, eternity. But for me, in my heart, I've always longed for the idea when I came to Christ and I began to read his word, I began to ask my pastor the questions like, so I'm reading this stuff that these amazing women and men did for the kingdom of God. And I'm like, was that just for them back then? Was it just something historical that I should be reminded of and clap and say, well done, good and faithful servants back then? And I asked my pastors, I said, or can we do the stuff? Because if we can't do the stuff, then why doesn't Jesus just beam me up, Scotty? And if you don't know that reference, I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> but, you know, why not just, I say yes to Jesus, transport me, Jesus. Could it be that the kingdom inauguration is the idea that Jesus wants heaven to enter your life? And that it's not just somewhere you're going to get to, but actually it's something you're going to pull into your present tense reality. That the environment of heaven could actually change the earth. Could it be that when he, the disciples asked him, how do we pray? That, that prayer of really, you know, heaven on earth. That Jesus wasn't actually kidding about that. That he wasn't saying it was a now and not yet kingdom tension. It was like, this is right now. You could pray the environment of heaven into your current situation. Why do we think that when Jesus walked the earth and he demons were in front of him, that they, they had to move back because the presence of heaven was in the environment. Why are the sick healed when they're around Jesus? Because the presence of heaven is around them. Why are people set free from whatever oppression they're in? It's because the presence of heaven is in Jesus and it's around them. And if that is true for Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to you, then that should be true for every environment that you go in. Amen. There it is. That's justice. Go do the work. But it takes work, doesn't it, beloved? It takes work, and it's not easy. And that's the role I'm in. I get, again, the privilege to come alongside the church, pastors, leaders, superintendents, network leaders, international leaders, missionaries, uh, lay people, clergy, and help them come back to a reframing again of our history and our heritage and our legacy as free Methodists. We're not inventing something new. I think when the bishops came out and said, hey, we want to do the strategic catalyst for love, and justice, people were like, well, why do we need that? Well, it's like, have you ever heard the story of 
of the Apostle John being asked why he always preached on love. So, you know, if you read the Apostle John, he, he's like, he's love and love and love and so much love. And every sermon was about love. And so finally someone came up and said, you know, Apostle John, what, why do you keep speaking on love? He goes, I will stop speaking on love when you get it. And it's that idea, even with justice, if we had it and we got it, we probably wouldn't need this role. But the reality is it's a two-sided coin. And the fact that I applaud that we have someone who's going to be focusing and challenging the church and our denomination to be strategically focused on this issue as a priority, yet on the flip side of the coin, it is also sad to realize that a group of people that in our history, in our legacy, this is what we were birthed into with Jesus's heart to the marginalized, and we have somehow forgotten about how important this role is, that now we, we need that tension. So it's a both end. But my heart is we're going to do this until justice just is. It just is a part of who we are and why we do what we do. So when you've been part, if you've been part of the Free Methodist Church or you're, this is brand new and you're like, what is a Free Methodist? Pastor Michelle can tell you all about that. But it is part of our heritage and our legacy. We're not changing our, our value. We're not changing who we are. We're not going somewhere weird. We're just reframing back to who we've always been and bringing that back to the forefront. So I'd like to show you this quick little video, just as a reminder of our history and our legacy. Justice. In 1860, B.T. Roberts and other leaders in the Methodist Episcopal Church were abolitionists and very critical of their church for not denouncing slavery. When they left the denomination to form the Free Methodist Church, they became supporters in the anti-slavery movement and believed in equality for all, regardless of ethnic background. Many early Free Methodists were also active in the operation of the Underground Railroad, which helped enslaved African Americans escape into free states in Canada. Today, we continue to pursue diversity and call out systematic and racial injustice in our communities, our country, and around the world. We continue the anti-slavery movement by taking a stand against human trafficking, sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, and forced labor. Free Methodists introduce people to Jesus, change the world one person at a time, and alleviate suffering. We are still free. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, we are still free. Go ahead, we are still free. Some of you are more free than others I can see in this room, but that's okay, we are still free. And this is part of our heritage, part of our legacy, and what we wanna do is just see this come into the forefront for such a time as this. And God's looking for people like yourself. People have asked, why did I get involved in this area of ministry particularly? I love pastoring, I love being a local church pastor. I think that's where all the work is done, to be honest with you. I think this is where God does good stuff. And in the hospitals, in the local church, God does good stuff here. I got a little nervous about being a step away from the local church because I feel like that's where my heart beats. I love being a superintendent. I love help shepherding shepherds and helping our conference go through a pandemic. I, I was pleased to do that. But I realized in my life, and I'm hoping for you, that things will come together as you continue to mature in Christ, like a funnel, that there's, there's something that God continues to put right in front of you and says, this is your sweet spot. This is what God has wired you to do. And I hope for some of you in this room, you're like, well, I'm already past that point. No, you're not. 
I want you to lean into that space that God, what is that space you want me to work in? And I felt like this was, this God was framing me, and, and to be honest with you, he's Jehovah Sneaky. He was setting me up all the way from the day I was born. So some of you know I'm from a biracial family, and so that had lots of complexities, lots of complexities for my parents to be married in the 50s and 60s and for the United States not to even recognize their marriage. So I had lots of complexities. You know, my parents had kids, and, you know, my oldest brother is red hair and freckles. My middle brother is predominantly black. My sister's predominantly black. I came out, and they're like, I don't know, maybe he's from the Middle East. I'm not sure. But... <laughs> So, you know, we're, we're definitely we are the world. My wife is Puerto Rican and Mexican. Our kids are we are the world. So all of that is shaped into my story. My dad struggled through, you know, all of the work environment, as you can imagine, as an African-American in the United States. But he became really successful and did really well. But that had its own issues. And, and then we ex experienced extreme poverty, which was a really important part of our story. And I, I really thought when I first came to Christ that my ministry would just be the ministry to the poor. And God just was framing things, shaping things. And then my mom, as she was growing up as a child, was uh, just horribly abused. So, you know, the idea of, of violence and abuse in, in that generation and trying to work that through. And, and sadly, it was mixed up with just this religious overtone. And all of that was just shaping my story. All of these things, being in front of people that, you know, had come out of trafficking and, you know, and just, you know, I'm from Canada and man, I had trouble getting my immigration status. So all these things, they just shape, you know, like, what, why are people afraid of Canadians? We're so nice. We say sorry all the time. It should be an open border. Anyway, so not sponsored. I love that line. I'm going to use that everywhere I go. And so, you know, it's just, it's funneling my life, you know, all these experiences to this moment of saying, God, if, it, if this is what you've called me to do, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to say yes. And the more I've been with Jesus, you know, there have been times where I thought he was telling me to do something, and I jumped in. He's like, I didn't tell you to do that, but have fun. There are times, though, when it's been really clear, I'm asking you to do this because you're the person for me in this moment. Say yes. And every yes has been, you know, just, just a, an amazing amount of his favor and his grace. And I'll be honest with you, if he showed me what all of the yes looked like, I would say no every time. It's like he just shows me enough to get to the door, but he doesn't show me the parking lot because he may not want me to see the parking lot right now. You know what I'm saying? Or down the street. So I'm just taking my little small yeses with him, and this is the yes that God put on my heart. I was with, I was in Alabama, and how much time do I have? Just tell me when I'm supposed to be done. Okay, okay, don't say ish. Okay, we'll just say 11.30 and I'll try to be done before then and then everyone will like me. Okay. So, because the Bible says you have to, all right? Okay. Um, so, you know, I was in Alabama and uh, I, an Uber driver was there and he was in the play The Color Purple. He was down from Atlanta, down in Columbus, Georgia, and then over into Montgomery, Alabama. So, he's, he's my Uber driver, amazing young guy and so we're sitting there, we're talking, and, you know, news is just blowing up. It's a, last month, so you can imagine. There's just lots of things that are happening in our nation at the time. And he starts just talking, and then he asked me, you know, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm, all right, brace yourself. I am the strategic catalyst for love-driven justice. And I went through that whole spiel, all right? And he's like, and his eyes were like, oh, man, that's, that's pretty cool. 
And he goes, do you think it'll work? Great question. Great question. Do you, do you think this will work? And we just kind of sat there and we, we talked for a little bit. And he goes, and then he asked me, why do you do this, man? Because it just feels like impossible. And one, convince the church that this is something we should be doing. And two, to really help people do it. And I, I, as I was getting out of the car, I just said, you know, this is why I do it. I have hope for my generation and the generation before me to get our minds reorientated to Jesus. I do. I really do. But my greatest desire and why I do this is for this generation. And I said, I'm willing to lay my life down for you guys. Because the people that have done this work ahead, that's what they did. And then we somehow forgot about it. And so my heart is just to lay down my life until this becomes true in your life. That you can walk into a room and not have to code switch. And if you don't know what that means, you should learn what that means. Because a lot of people that are people of color have to code switch every time they're in a room where they're not the dominant person. I would love that that would be true. I would love that, you know, as children are being born, that they, they're not judged by the color of their skin or their ability to walk upstairs. That's important to me. And so I just said, you know, we're going to love well until love wins. And I know that's kind of a worldly thing, and people get a little freaked out, like, oh, love wins, that's, that's a whole other political agenda. And I just, I just dropped this on and said, and the world could do that. They could love well until love wins. But we're going to love like Jesus loved. And we're going to use the ethic of Jesus to kind of pave the way so we can love well till love wins and that justice just is. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm in. Sign me up. He doesn't know Jesus yet, but he signed up. He said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. That's what this generation wants to do. They, they, they want to just come into a building and say, I love Jesus. I, they, they want their neighbors to be impacted by the love of Jesus so that they can have hope again in their next generation and for their kids. And man, if they don't have hope, we've got a problem. Because I need somewhere to go to church. And if they're like, we're done, then we're all done. And it's a new world that they're living in. And I want to bring hope to that, and I hope you do too. All right, well, I said that we were going to do it in Mark 10, I promise. So now we're there finally. So all that intro was for free for you so people understand why I do what I do. I came across this guy. His name is Michael Murphy, and he is a perceptual artist. And if you don't know what perceptual artist, it's just this really abstract way of kind of doing artwork. So they create these beautiful pieces of art. And if you walk in, if you're into it, you're like, oh, that looks pretty cool. I don't know where you'd put that in your house, but it's pretty cool. But perceptual art is a whole different thing. It's like you look at it, you're like all these broken pieces. But if you begin to look at it more, you'll see what happens. It's the coolest thing. And what I want to do for the next few moments in Mark 10 is just kind of walk you through some perceptual art of the masterpiece of God's word. So that you can begin to see things. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you might see love-driven justice in a whole different way. You're seeing it like all kind of broken pieces. But you have to understand, God doesn't see you in broken pieces. 
Do you know that? Okay, this, this part's for free. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to give it to you. Sorry, Pastor John. Really important for the church to get this. Once you said yes to Jesus, he was done looking at the broken pieces of you. Because what he sees in you is that before you were formed in your mama's womb, was someone set apart to change the world. Then he knew that you would enter the world and the world would try to cut you up and divide you into pieces. But Jesus never stopped seeing you as whole, as gold, as perfect, as glorious, as a representation of the Imago Dei. So really stop insulting Jesus when you keep saying, I'm just a mess. I'm so broken. I get that. There is the whole side of our pastoral care and counseling and shepherding to get to wholeness. But remember what Jesus did on the cross was he said, I paid the price for that. I only see you as this. Every time I see you, you may come with all your broken pieces and lay them at my feet, but I only see you as glorious. I only see you as beautiful. And if we could get that perspective when we're thinking about neighbor. When we're thinking about justice issues, when you're thinking about a headline, instead of seeing it all broken and scattered, and oh, beloved, these last two to three years, it just seems so broken, so scattered, so separated, so polarized, so tribalized. Can I just tell you, Jesus doesn't see it that way. He sees it so clearly put together in wholeness because he chooses to see the glory of heaven in you. says amen or something. I don't know, but usually what's happened right there. He chooses to see you that way. And as we maybe have that filter on our glasses today, that way to look at scripture and say, wait a minute, when Jesus came on the scene and he saw people, he saw them whole. But what we'll see is the crowds and disciples were always struggling in seeing them broken. All right, if you're at Mark 10, say amen. I gave you a long time. You had a chance to even look in the table of contents to get there, so I don't know. Let's just dive in, shall we? Mark chapter 10, it says this, verse 1. They, 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 they came to Jericho, and I love this. They came to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. And it's just important to recognize that in this culture that was very normal that if a traveling speaker or someone famous was coming, the crowd would come out of the city to greet them. And as they were leaving the city, they would go with them. And as you know, in the background of this passage, it's really clear uh, that obviously Jesus is on his way to the Passion Week, one of the most important weeks in the life of Christ and in our lives. And so in this moment, the crowds are kind of growing and he's there and he's just doing his thing. And he just had this crazy conversation with the disciples on who's going to be the greatest and who, who's called to be the greatest. And he's really clear. It's like, hey, I came to serve, not to be served. And isn't it like Jesus that right in that moment, he, he says, I'm just going to show you what that means. So Jesus tells us something, then he's going to demonstrate it. That's what he does over and over in Scripture. So there he is. And now we have, I'm sorry, did I say verse 1, verse 46? My apologies. That in this triple tradition, right, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give this perspective of this. And obviously, I think it's in Matthew where there's two guys there. But 
Mark decides, we're just going to call out Bartimaeus. The, we're just going to talk about Bart. And I've always thought to myself when I looked at that passage, like, why, why did they just name him Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus? Why didn't they name the other guy? And I think that's just a subtle reminder that so many people that are in the margins, they need to be named. When you're ministering to people that are broken, you need to call out their name. It brings wholeness to them and healing, okay? So here's Bartimaeus. Now, the interesting thing about Bartimaeus, and as you know, most of our New Testament, Jesus spoke in Aramaic and, of course, Greek and, and Hebrew. He was that guy. But we recognize that many times it should be translated in Aramaic. And so this term Bartimaeus, it's such an interesting term because Bartimaeus means son of filth. It means the defiled one. It means the son of unclean things, which is so strange to me, right? So picture Jesus walking down. There's Bartimaeus. He's about to cry out. And Mark's like, we want to make sure that we're naming the son of filth. So we, we got to get our filter on, right? And I think, I think that Mark is so brilliant as he, he shares this because we know that the son of Timaeus, that the root of Timaeo means honored and someone highly esteemed. So somewhere along the line, in Timaeo, he became Bartimaeus. Somewhere the world threw something at the person that was supposed to be this, and now is this. And I, I want to challenge us that I think when we think about love-driven justice, we have to be thinking about how we see as Jesus sees, and we have to be compelled to understand he sees so differently. He sees people as highly esteemed. And so when Jesus is walking there, and Bartimaeus begins to cry out, and Mark calls out the name, it's clearly saying to us that when Jesus is confronting those on the margin, he knows who they are completely. The world is calling you a son or a daughter of such and such and such and such. But Jesus is always going to go back to the root of who you are. His child, a daughter and son of the king. So here we have to recognize the first thing is that love-driven justice teaches us to see as Jesus sees. If, if we're not seeing as Jesus sees, if we're not seeing the gospels clearly, I know we often uh, harp on the fact that the, the idea of, you know, Come and follow Jesus. You know, take up your cross and follow him. I think that's amazing. However, the challenge is when you get to John 14 and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the disciples respond and say, show us the Father and we'll believe. Now, uh, they've been with Jesus for three years. If those guys and gals didn't get it, we, we're, we're sunk. And that always, like, show us the Father. And I, I recognize that. So much of the gospel is about seeing. And if you read the first couple chapters of each of the gospels, Jesus is always like, come and see, come and see. I saw you, I saw you over there. I saw that person. Come and see, come and see, come and see. I think before we follow, we have to learn how to see better. We have to begin to notice better. We have to begin to take the blinders off when we're driving home and see what's happening in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our churches. Everyone good with that? So Bartimaeus cries out, I love this, right? And Luke, it gives the, the other idea of like someone whispers to Bartimaeus, hey, Jesus is passing by, which you always have to have someone who, in the love-driven justice movement who's willing to reveal Jesus. And I, I don't want to overemphasize this, but unless Jesus shows up in the space, we're not going to make it. And justice will continue, in my mind. 
So Jesus, who is just, needs to be revealed into the space. So Jesus is passing by, and it's important that we recognize that in the root of who Jesus is, when Jesus identifies himself, anytime that God identifies himself, he self-reveals who he is. So when he says, I am Yahweh, it means that he's Savior, Lord, Redeemer, right, Deliverer. That, he's revealing himself in his name. But it's not just a name that is revealing himself and defining itself. He's also defining how he will act towards you. So recognize that when Jesus, who enters into a space, he's also known throughout Scripture as the just and upright God. So it's not just the name of Jesus. It's how he acts in every situation. So when we think about justice, we have to remember it's the very nature and character of Jesus showing up in a space. He can't un-God himself. Does that make sense? So we need people that will be revealing who Jesus is in this space, the truth of who he is in this space. Next to that, you have, of course, Bart, who cries out, and he uses this imaginative term, right, in Scripture. He calls him the son of David. It's a title, but it's a title that the listeners in the crowd would have known clearly. He's calling out the messianic title of who Jesus is, and as Jesus is self-revealed as the Messiah, right? Jesus the Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name, okay, just so you know. It's a title. He is the Messiah. Then all of the privileges of the Messiah are showing up into that space. In the mind, and Aiden did a great job getting you into a place of understanding prescriptive and descriptive understanding of Scripture. But in the mind of the believers in that moment, they would have recognized, oh, wait a minute, the Messiah shows up to turn things upside down. The Messiah comes and heals. The Messiah comes and opens the blind eye. The Messiah comes and opens the deaf ear. The Messiah comes and turns over systems. That, that's what the Messiah does. And so this guy Bartimaeus knows in the deep part of who he is, he needs something like that to change his life. He doesn't need another good pastor, another good teacher, another interesting prophet that's walking down. He needs the very son of God, the Messiah, to flip his world upside down. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, Mark starts very clearly of who Jesus is. He says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that just really quickly, just those little three uh, definitions of the good news is the idea of the gospel, which we get our gospel message. But that Greek word actually literally meant in culture that it was the royal entrance of the emperor. So Mark was saying something. He says, our gospel is a different news than what the emperor brings. Our king brings amazing news because he can change because his kingdom is advancing and has entered the earth. When Mark begins to say that he is Jesus the Christ, he is saying that the Messiah has come, that the royal king has arrived. So the good news is the royal entrance, the king is now here. And then of course we recognize the son of God. It is the very title that God calls out and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Because scripture declares that when God calls out a son, he's calling out the royalty. He calls out a daughter, he's calling out the royalty. Because they're in the lineage of who the Messiah is. So all that to say that love-driven justice must reveal who justice is. And it's Jesus, the royal king. And Bart begins to cry out. Saying, this is who I need. Our world is crying out. And what we need to learn is now this next statement is just that this love-driven justice teaches us how to hear the crowds better, beloved. Because they're crying out. And Bartimaeus, I'm almost there, 10 more minutes. I'm, I'm whew, I'll land the plane, I promise. 
there's this word that he used, it's crasso, and so as you can even hear it, and it's it basically where we get the word crazy, when people are doing crazy talk, crazy yelling. They usually use it in two contexts, and please, ladies, I didn't write this, it just is how the context of Scripture is used. Crasso is used for when someone's being delivered of a demon or giving birth. And I'm not saying that they're the same thing, but it's loud, okay? It's crazy. There's one other reference Crasso's use, and it's when Jesus shouts something out, and he did that a few times, that he was the living water, he shouted in a Crasso way, and from the cross, it is finished, he shouted in a Crasso way. So it's loud, and it is crazy. And I don't know, you know, different parts of the church are louder and crazier than others. I don't know what Living Spring is, if we're that loud or crazy or not. But it is that reality that the world sounds crazy. Hear me now. Every time you read a headline, soundbite, Facebook posts, TikTok, whatever it is, it sounds crazy. You know why it sounds crazy? Because they're crying out for the son of David to show up. And what we do is exactly what the crowd of disciples do. Shh. Now, the NIV and NRSV, are, they're also playing. The, the, the crowd and disciples turn to the guy, hey, be quiet, hey, man. Come on, you gotta be quiet. Jesus, this is Jesus' time, not your time. But that be quiet is really more an insulting be quiet. It's more, forgive me, it's more like you need to shut your mouth and you need to shut it right now. It's not like shh, polite shh, like Canadians would do it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like you need to, or I'm gonna go hoodie on you right now. You need to be quiet now. Shh. Isn't that amazing? The world is crying out. And what do we do as the church in our response? Shh, just be quiet. You don't know better. Where we need to be tuning our ears to say, if that's where the cry is, that's where we need to be responding. How are we doing? Doing okay? You still love me? Well, you don't have to answer that. You have to. You have to. Remember, you have to. <laughs> so here are these guys are crying out, crazo, right? And love-driven justice is not turned off by the sound, but turned to the call of freedom. They hear in the crazy call, freedom, please set me free. It teaches us to hear like Jesus hears. And again, beloved, the more we tell them to be quiet, the louder they will get. And let me just be honest, the last two years, as the world has witnessed the church, we wonder why the world is getting louder. So let's just pause here for a moment. Maybe put that picture up of all those broken pieces. So now you're seeing all these pieces, and they're going to start to come together here because I hope you're, you're being challenged to see a new way of filtering Scripture a little bit. And saying, wait a minute, God, this is not just a, a fun story on the way to you know, Passion Week where Jesus heals the blind guy. He, he's setting a marker of his mission. It's who he is Luke chapter 4, it's really clear when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it in his hometown, not too far from where he's at. And he says very clearly, this is what I've come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointing me for the good news to see breakthrough in all these different categories. And that the year of Jubilee would happen, this year of favor. And the people of God were so excited to hear that. They're like, oh yeah, this is for us. And Jesus is like, no, it's not for you. It's your responsibility now to bring freedom to other people. 
And he gives some clear examples of people that are on the outside of the church, of the temple, of the people of God. And then they're like, we're going to throw you out. You're, you got to go, Jesus. And they want to chase him out of town. But I love that when Jesus is present, he never has to run anywhere. He just walks right through the crowd. And here we are in this moment again where Jesus said, this is my ethic. Everywhere I go, this is what I do. If I see broken people, I'm going to help them because I see them whole. How about you? Who are you in the crowd? Are you Bartimaeus? Are you in this moment in your life like, man, every, I am tore from the floor up, Fraser. There's so many things I can't even think about other people. I just need Jesus to hear me one more time. And I just would say, get a little louder, be a little more craso, and he will stop the whole world for you. Maybe, like the church, we're mostly the crowd and disciples. Because remember, these are the same guys who ask, how, how do we become the best? How do we become the first? How do we become the greatest? And Jesus is like, you can just, you know, I have a whole Fraser International version of how Jesus rolls. But just, I'm just thinking he's walking down and he's watching the disciples like, oh, you wanted to be the best. I just told you to be a servant, but now you're telling our neighbor to shut up. You guys don't ever do that because you're holy. Living springs, you can feel the holiness of God. Just go like, right? But maybe the rest of the church is struggling in that. As, a, as the crowd, as the disciples, that we're, we're not seeing as Jesus sees. We're not hearing as Jesus sees. We're not revealing Jesus as he needs to be revealed, beloved. And we're not really listening to the sound of the crowd. But who are you in the story? My hope is that by the end, you'll be Jesus and as we, we get near the end here, you see that Jesus stops everything and he says, call him here. Now, this is, this is really significant, you guys. He doesn't call to Bartimaeus. I'm going to call you Bartimaeus just for a moment. It's a cool name because the root of it means high and esteemed. Just get rid of the Bart part. So here's, here's this, this interaction. He doesn't call to you. He actually calls to the crowd and disciples and says, you call him here. There's something that Jesus says that I want to show you what it really means to love other. He could have just went, boop, Michelle, come here. But he calls to those who actually are confused to be now the escorts of holiness to Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's you today, where you're going to take the step and say, wait a minute, Jesus, just call out the crowd and heal them, get them fixed. And Jesus doesn't work that way. He says, Carol, Dave, you bring them here. Janine, you bring them here. Michelle, you bring them here. Because he does, he's doing something in the formation of your heart. And can I say this in a, in a workshop that I do for justice all the time? I say, everybody has one get. There's one thing that your heart beats for that Jesus' heart beats for too. You can't get them all, but you can get one. One get. It could be homelessness, it could be immigration, it could be disability, it could be trafficking, it could be uh, various communities, whatever it is. There's one get that everybody's going to be accountable for, beloved. Some of you have multiple, but at least all of you have one get that you are responsible and accountable for by the blood of Jesus to be the person who is escorting that person from the margin to Jesus. promise it will get better as I'm almost done but that's where we are friends that's that's what we need to do because love-driven justice doesn't listen to the crowd it listens to the voice of Jesus 
and recognizes that I get to be a part of the solution of the situation. So, you know, I'll, just for time's sake, the story wraps up and the person comes and I, I think Aiden even mentioned this message is like that whole, you feel like Jesus is being a little snarky, like what can I do for you? I mean, the guy's blind, what, what do you think he wants? But this is important too. Sometimes we think that justice is about rescuing people. That's not true. It's part of it. Justice is helping people be free to steward their new life. For Bartimaeus to leave his cloak behind was symbolizing to that community, I no longer want to live in the margin anymore. That was his, his way of saying identity. This is for the poor to say, this is, this is, this is my, my, my wheel cart. This is my tent. I'm, I, I am taking it off and leaving it there. And so Jesus said, then what do you want me to do for you? Because this new life, you're going to have to steward. Because remember, in this, in this story, you, you get the illusion that Bartimaeus saw before. I want to see again. It's not I want to see for the first time. I want to see again, which means that the world had blinded him to something. And so just take the symbol of that and whatever it is in the margin, they have been blinded by something that has been dumped on them that was not for the plan of God in their life at all. Jesus says seriously, do, do you want to be well? Do, do you want this? Because you're going to have to steward it. You can't live there anymore. You're going to have to now walk in this lane and see other people in the margin because you've been there and you've got to call them out. Remember when he healed the 10 lepers and only one came back? That one got it. Got the get. Got the understanding that I am responsible, that Jesus is more than just my deliverer out of a problem. He's calling me to be responsible to the stewardship of being free from that problem and bringing that freedom to others. You guys are awesome, man. You're putting up with me, I know, but that's all right. So ultimately, Jesus' love-driven justice, he sees compassionately, and we'll just kind of wrap it up there, that, that word of healing is sozo, and that Greek word means more than just a deliverance of him getting sight, the physical restoration, but it was an emotional, relational, and most importantly, a salvic, a salvation restoration. It's like, your faith is going to heal you. This is a good day for you. But man, it wouldn't have been a good day unless Jesus was present. Because the crowd would have just walked by. But isn't it interesting that God partners with us saying, when we say, God, look at the problems we're facing. And Jesus turns around and goes, look at the problems we're facing. We are blaming God for things where I think God has every right to turn around and say, I called you to be my partner. All right, we'll end on a happy note. So there, if we fast forward, there's a, a picture of a bowl, and uh, a golden bowl here. And, and you, this, this art form of kintsugi, maybe you've heard of a Japanese art form, where they don't, they don't throw away broken things. And I love this. Maybe you've read about this. You've seen this art. It's just like, we're not throwing away things that are broken. I thought, that's so kingdom. And what they do is they take things that are broken, and if you can see in the picture, all of this is weaved in gold. So they don't just put, you know, Gorilla Glue on it and some duct tape and say, now we're going to use it and try to hope, to hope our cereal doesn't pour out. I mean, they take the very best of what they have and put it into something that is broken. That sounds so much like Jesus to me. 
and that God would call us in this moment as love-driven justice people to bring the gold back into the broken because Jesus sees people as completely, completely whole. One last story because now we're at the time and it's time for me to be done. I was in Alabama. I got a chance to do a little bit of a civil rights tour. I call it my weeping week. It was just one of the most difficult things that I've ever experienced in my life. Powerful, beautiful, convicting. I have a thousand stories. One story today. As I'm leaving the Legacy Museum, which I hope that anybody has the ability to get to Montgomery, Alabama, to go to the Legacy Museum, I promise you it will be well worth the trip. The very end of this incredible museum that traces all the history, the, just the brutal history of slavery in our nation from the 1600s till today, it comes to the conclusion you're walking down and there's this hallway of 300 pictures. And I was done, you guys, I gotta be honest. I was, that was the end of the day. I, I had no more tears. I was exhausted. Uh, it was so painful and revelatory and powerful all in one moment. I'm at the end, I'm getting there and I'm like, right here is where you exit out. And I'm just walking down, and I'm seeing all of these faces, these remarkable people from the 1600s on of just who, have, who gave their life and sacrificed for other, for the margin, to the very cost of their own life. And by the time I got to the end, right here, you can't really see it, it's a couch. I just, I sat down, and I don't know where the tears came from, because I felt like there's nothing left, that just like waterworks were coming out of me. And I just sat there and I just, I looked at all these pictures, some familiar, some not familiar. And then I realized as an indictment in my own heritage and history, I was like, I, I don't see any pictures of the Free Methodist Church in this, this hallway. And it convicted me deeply. Not that we didn't do some work, beloved, but we didn't continue the work. Let's just be honest about our history. We did it, but we didn't continue. And we were silent in some moments that we should never have been silent as a church. But beyond that, because, you know, we can live in criticism. I was like, that convicts me, Lord. The most important thing that hit me in that space was every face, every man and woman, recognized, unrecognized to me, lived a life of courage. They said, I'm willing to love well till love wins. And I'm willing to lay my life down for it. It sounds like Jesus to me. And my prayer was just this simple, God. Give me the courage to be counted among the heroic. Just give me the courage to be counted among the heroic. That's what you did for me. I don't think you're asking me to do anything less than that. Let's stand. I know our, the prayer, I was going to say our prayer team. It is our prayer team. I'm family, so that's how it works. The prayer team will be right here, and maybe there's something in today's message which, by the way, thank you, prayer team. That's amazing. You guys are awesome. Maybe there's something in the message that you're thinking, you know, I, I've not said yes to Jesus yet. That would be your first step, recognizing that he sees you in the margin. You've called out. He wants you to respond, so come and respond to his love. It's amazing. Maybe for some of you in the room, you're like, man, I, I have not seen this justice thing fully correct, that I... I've seen it kind of broken pieces, but now it's starting to come together and I, I'm ready to kind of move forward and say, God, I, I need your help. I need your help to be courageous.
to take off the blinders, to take out the earplugs, and to see and hear the margins like I've never seen them before. Maybe that's you. Maybe some of you are already in the work, and justice work is hard. In that uh, picture I showed of MLK, I think I put in that one, I usually put the picture of him where he's just exhausted laying down on the side, basically. Because we often see the pictures of Martin Luther King kind of prominent and preaching and energy, but he was Reverend Dr. King. He was a pastor who carried the weight of this movement in his heart, and it was hard. And so maybe for some of you that are justice workers that are doing the work right now in this amazing local church, I know you guys do incredible things for your city and community. Maybe you're doing things in, in your neighborhood and hospitals and workplaces, and you're carrying it. And maybe you just need someone to pray an encouragement over you. Just like, help me to remain courageous. And then ultimately, beloved, whether you come here or you're in your seat, I hope you get your get. That you won't leave the room without God saying in your heart, that's the one. And let me just be honest, it's usually the one you want to avoid. It's that one, like, I don't want to read an article about that. I don't want to stop and talk to that person. I don't want to have a conversation with that person. That's usually the one where your heart's racing and you're a little frustrated. And God's like, yeah, that's your get. Because he wants you to grow in grace in that. Once you say yes, the peace will come. So all of those are available for prayer. I'll be here after service. I'm happy to talk to anyone. My wife and I, we have these little Love Driven Justice stickers. Uh, we'd love to give you one. Um, and we, all we ask is that you just pray for us. We just ask for your prayer covering as we travel around the country and talk about this topic that is sometimes really well received and sometimes not well received. But we really covet your prayer covering love for you to partner with us in that. But if you extend your hands, I'd love to pray for you. Living Springs, I thank you as a church for the work that you're doing. I thank you for the way you love your shepherds and your staff. I thank you for the way you love your neighborhood. I thank you that your heart is to see the world change through the power and the love of Jesus. And now, God, I pray as the church is coming out of the pandemic that you would strengthen them again, encourage them again revive and refresh them again to the work that you've called them to do, Lord. Yes, go make disciples. Yes, love God, love their neighbor. But Lord, also look forward to the ethic of Jesus to, to see the marginalized and see the power of the Holy Spirit bring heaven into earth. But all of that, God, in this day, whatever the beloved have carried in, I pray that as they walk out, that they are now yoked with your peace. So may the peace of Christ be yours. May the goodness of God be upon you see his face and his glory and that when he looks at you he is so well pleased with you because you are loved as a child of the king go in that great peace i pray in jesus name amen and amen hey thanks living springs thanks for letting me hang out with you guys today <laughs>